Hello, Jordan. Uh, how's it going? What's up? Hey, it's going well. What's up, man? Well, I'm feeling feeling pretty energized, actually. Um, you know, you talk about the sort of political news going on in the United States. Uh, it's it's pretty heavy. A lot of the stuff. And sometimes I feel, you know, even we try to be really forgiving, but sometimes I, I've gotten a little bit of an inclination that the sort of Democratic Party, who we obviously support, we full, full-fledged support everything that they do, no questions asked. Sometimes throughout this these last couple of months, I have felt a little hint of disappointment sometimes at some of the response to these crises. But I got to say, I was really, really encouraged this week by by some of the movement we saw from the Democratic Party, really kind of getting back on top of their game. Uh, I thought it was a pretty solid week for the for the Dems, and I'm I'm pretty happy about it. Yeah, I think they're kind of cutting through the noise. Um, we're seeing a bunch of seeing a bunch a bunch of amendments introduced uh, as appropriations as appropriations bills are formulated, and um, yeah, I think they're really cutting to the heart of the issue issues that will help improve all of our material circumstances. Yeah. And, and for instance, one thing that I, like, I noticed that I was really impressed by was how they dodged the bullet of, uh, Bernard Sanders. Oh, that guy. Uh, you may have heard of. Yeah. Uh, trying to cut the Pentagon budget by 10%. Um, the, the, you know, the 700 something billion dollar Pentagon budget. He was trying to scale that back to like just the levels that it was a few years ago. Obviously that's not something that anyone supports really disappointing i guess it's not disappointing when it comes to that particular individual because you see the kind of stuff that he's that he's into and you know i guess we shouldn't be surprised anymore but uh still still pretty upsetting to see him try to to pull that kind of maneuvering in a moment like this and so it, you know you got to give the democratic party credit they didn't fall for it uh managed to to vote that down even despite being in control of the the house and you know having a lot of political power to to do things like this didn't even come close to to passing this thing so you got to give them credit for for not cutting the old uh, pentagon budget because that would have been well you know that would have been a total disaster for america if they had done that oh i know i think the 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 when you are posturing as a party that opposes forever wars especially during election season and talking about the importance of bringing our troops home, the last thing you want to do is is cut the budget for that military that that's kind of fueling these wars. So thank you to the brave, bold leadership of all the Democrats who uh, refused to cut our the the funding for our brave troops, uh, our brave esports gamers, and our brave heroes yes. in the Space Force. All of those. Uh, heroes those those valorant champions essential yeah we we cannot afford we cannot cut their budget by a penny or else the terrorists win yeah and and the republicans would say that they were bad on the military and you can't have that right so it'd be playing right into donald trump's hands his his small hands yeah he's to do that hands. and now yeah. now now of course now that they've passed this this like gigantic uh 700 something billion dollar budget even more than I think what Trump requested initially. Uh, now it shows how serious they are about the military and how much they are care about protecting that. So obviously Donald Trump won't say anything like that now that they've done that. So that's the kind of 4D chess 
that you need to have from leadership. So I was really happy to see that uh, this week from Democratic Party leadership. Yeah, exactly. Um, we have a we have a Cheeto in chief in the White House, and he's got the nuclear oh, yeah. codes, and he is extremely dangerous. So I think that we uh, definitely should keep the military as is, and just you know, yeah. we don't want him waging wars because he's just a terrible uh, megalomaniac who's a loose cannon and could you know thrust us into World War Three. So let's keep the military exactly as it is right now. Or That's even more, best. even more of a yeah, budget. Yeah, can we increase the fu- we can increase yeah. the funding? Oh, please, let's do it. Yeah, because he's dangerous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I'm glad that's resolved. Uh, I was nervous about that this week, and then the other thing, though, that because you said the military was staying the same, but that's not exactly true. Uh, there are some big fundamental changes being made right now. So, mm-hmm. even though the budget is uh, still just astronomically huge, one thing that there is an amendment being passed to ensure that no military bases will be named after Confederate war generals. So really oh. that's the kind of like substantive change that you want to see. You know, if you're anti-war, if you're, if you're on the, the liberal side, um, that's the kind of big structural change that you want to, you want to see to the military. So it's going to be, I think that's going to be really good for everybody uh, in America, abroad. And you know, you know, when, when a, a wedding in Yemen gets hit by a drone strike, they'll know, that there was no way that that drone was being piloted by anyone on a military base that was named after like a racist or Confederate war general or something. So that's, I mean, that's, that's just huge. And I was really impressed that uh, the Democrats made that a priority and, and got it done. Really impressive stuff. Yeah. Well, I think this is a huge step forward and we're, we're, we're shifting our base names away from Confederate generals to more uh, modern and relevant names of uh world war ii era racists and and vietnam era racists yeah. so thank you to the brave leadership in congress for updating giving a facelift to the military bases and i think yeah i think they're going to be thankful when um yeah when we're shooting white phosphorus into crowded villages uh in the middle east they'll know that those those troops those brave troops were stationed or trained at bases named after uh, john mccain or uh, Patton or MacArthur. So I think that's that's great. Yeah, definitely a great upgrade. Uh, I feel good about it. I think everyone else is going to feel good about it on, on either side of whatever unending military conflict that the United States uh, is involved in. So you got to hand it to the Democratic Party leadership. They really came through. Uh, we'd love to see it. And uh, thank you. Really, that's uh, as much as we can boil it down to. Sorry, you're still like, do you still have like a grocery situation? Uh, no, I, I, I just, just kind of just like in a funk. It's weird. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of, this military stuff is kind of stressful, but we'll see where, how it yeah, goes. Okay, well, let's, let's, uh, I think we should probably talk about that. But hello and welcome everybody to the Insurgents. It's episode 32. Uh, Rob Rousseau here with, with Jordan Ewell. And uh, yeah, Jordan, I, I got to say, some news broke just over the last hour or so. And I got to say, I'm a little bit disappointed in you, frankly, I actually, you know, I'm your friend. I try to support you. 
uh, try to work with you and and be there but I don't know if I can uh, I can know if I can really support you in this current situation where you're being accused of uh you know doing doing targeted harassment to the poor individuals of the the army esports team they've felt very uh, unsafe and intimidated by by some of the language that you've used in these online callouts this cancel culture that you're such a part of trying to mm-hmm. cancel the the army for the for the mere for the mere crime of of doing uh imperialist war crimes really disappointing stuff and uh you know i i hope that you're going to learn from this incident and and try and do better in, in the future uh i, I will try try <laughs> i'm going to i hear you military i see you um <laughs> i'm learning from this experience united states military uh want to be mindful um of your lived experiences uh, committing war crimes around the world and how that might have triggered you that I brought that up in an alphanumeric manner in your Twitch chat. Um, but no, yeah, yeah. The, the the situation that Rob is alluding to is in response <laughs> to the letter that the, my lawyers have sent to uh, military trying to get me unbanned from their Twitch chat. They're saying that uh, I was spamming and harassing their esports team members with intimidating speech and baiting questions in a manner that violated Twitch terms of service and the Navy's terms that mm. are posted on the Navy team's Twitch stream. Um, what's funny about that is the questions that I asked were all about military behavior that is well documented <laughs> and also their recruiting practices, which I've like voiced my uh, opposition to. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, questions about whether they recruit, how they recruit and pointing out in a kind of a a, a, a a funny way how they recruit in low-income schools. And I, I wrote about how I felt and, and talked about it before in the Nation piece and on our episode with Kofi. It's just like, that's extremely predatory because we're going into a moment now where half the country is out of work and a third of the country can't pay their housing payments. That's extreme economic instability. And that's when people kind of flock to the military because they offer you stability and security, guaranteed paycheck, all that kind of stuff. And when they're using this type of gamification and the stream stream technique with parasocial relationships in Twitch, that's really dangerous and predatory. So what people are trying to do, myself included, I'm certainly not the only one, is point out how seedy that recruiting tactic is. And the military clearly does not like that. So now the the most powerful military in the world is saying that people are intimidating them which is absolute bullshit <laughs> yeah it's no wonder the, the u.s military doesn't have a great track record in actually winning wars if this is the <laughs> this is the attitude they have to people being mean to them in twitch chat <laughs> i mean they're just lying I and mean, they're they're clearly not into it's just how this is how they're going to defend themselves because their sure. ultimate objective is to is to quash dissent in these spaces so people can just get recruited without any outside pushback which isn't fair like if you're going to have a recruiter, like you have a you have a recruiter in like a school, there should be, you know, at least if they want to, an anti-recruiter should have equal space. That's just how it should go. Yeah. I mean, you are recruiting for the largest military in the world, and you are a government um, official. You are paid, but you're you're part of the government, and you are recruiting for a a global imperialist force. People are allowed to speak out against that. That's that is ingrained in our First yeah. Amendment rights. Whether it's on Twitch or in a school cafeteria. 
Yeah. And, and not only did you mention that social conditions are aligning in a way that makes it a, a sort of ripe uh, moment for military recruiters to, to pull people into that system. There's also kind of like a burgeoning cold war with China and kind of increased saber rattling with, with that going on right now. So it's a particularly dangerous time for like vulnerable people that can be pulled into that system because not only is America embroiled in multiple forever wars right now, there is like legitimate possibility on the horizon for that to heat up elsewhere and become a lot worse. So uh, it's definitely good that you're pushing back on that and others are. As you said, using this kind of gamification to, to target uh, teens that are involved in this kind of stuff is pretty sick. And uh, and I'm glad you're pushing back on it. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. I don't know. I don't know where it goes from here. But isn't there actual legislation possibly being talked about about uh, they're limiting their ability to recruit on these like social platforms? Yeah, AOC introduced an amendment um, to strip the military of funding for these types of recruitment efforts. I'm just like blown away that that happened that fast. That's really cool. Yeah, that is cool. Um. Okay. Well. Uh, it's been pretty, it's been pretty remarkable to see that like envelop just from that one relatively innocent, uh, uh, evening of talking about war crimes on the, uh, on the, the U S army Twitch channel. Uh, so we're going to see how that goes, but, uh, it's, it's pretty remarkable that you're at the center of this, this, uh, whirlwind of controversy, but yeah, I guess you're, you know, you're a controversial kind of person that you, you bring that kind of chaotic energy to every, <laughs> all your different projects. So I guess it makes sense. I don't know if I actually am. That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty wild mannered for the most part. I mean, on, well, you're on a really Twitter, chill guy, just like around. it says on Twitch. Like, it's, it's it's right there in the I'm name, not, so I don't I see don't why they're going to false advertising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I know. Funny. Anyway, that's a pretty crazy story. Uh, but uh, yeah, hopefully you're not going to get uh, you're going to put in too many watch lists. Maybe just like a handful. Um, but yeah, well, I guess we're going to continue monitoring that and see how it uh, how it progresses. <laughs> um, okay, so folks, we've got uh, Gabby Del Valle coming on the show. She's a writer and reporter uh, at Borderlines on Substack. Uh, does you know Im- reporting about immigration? We talked last week um, about how this is a subject that we wanted to revisit the sort of immigration system in the age of uh, coronavirus, and she came on and was talking to us about uh, this subject. It was a very, very great conversation. And um, Gabby and uh, her uh, newsletter, Borderlines on Substack, and uh, us, the Insurgents, we're actually kind of joining forces in a way with this new media project. It's called Discontents. Do you want to, Jordan, do you just want to mention like what this is? Yeah, Discontents is a network of other Substack publishers, and most of them are, are newsletters. Uh, from a, presenting independent analysis, news, reporting, commentary, etc. From a lefty perspective, um, Derek Davidson uh, uh, put this together, and I think they've, he's assembled a, a fantastic crew. We're honored to be a part of it. I think people should subscribe. But, I mean, the, the end product on the consumer side is that you get a synthesized uh, a rundown of everything that everyone's published in one place. So you could see... Uh, Derek's stuff, Gabby's stuff, Luke O'Neill's, um, the discourse blog, the uh, friends of the show who, who were on earlier, the former Splinter Formerly people. Formerly Splinter, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, lots, lots of different uh, publishers. So you get it all in one synthesized digest in your inbox. It's really 
helpful. Yeah. So we're, we're really thrilled to be part of Discontents. Uh, please make sure you subscribe to that. And again, Gabby, who's coming on the show in just a few minutes, is also a part of it. Uh, that's going to be, I think, really cool, a really cool project moving forward. Um, before we got to, to Gabby, though, our interview with Gabby, I did just want to mention uh, briefly uh, the comrade Michael Brooks, because obviously it's been like a week now since Michael very tragically and, and uh, suddenly passed away. I was very, very sad. And you've, you've seen uh, like uh, eulogies and, and, and pieces honoring Michael's memory and his contributions pop up everywhere. So I don't want to take forever to, to talk about Michael and, you know, put our own personal spin on, on the, the tragedy. Um, but it was just, it was very, very sad and devastating. Uh, Michael was the person that I really respected and looked up to a lot. Um, and in terms of like this project that we're a part of, this kind of vision of, of uh, some more unified progressive media, uh, independent, non-corporate. This was something that he believed in so much and it had it made such huge strides at putting together with the work that he did on the Majority Report and the Michael Brooks show. And uh, I, I think Michael's a person that we can all really learn from and honor by thinking about the ideas that he was putting forward and, and trying to apply them to our own analysis and our own activism and our, and our own journalism. Yeah. Um, he was a staunch proponent of meeting the online right with the same force to beat them and drown them out. And I think that's something that people should always uh, keep centered as we go into kind of an unstable and fractured media environment. Uh, The guy was just ahead of his time on that front and really encouraging to people who are up and coming in the movement. Um, Fantastic, fantastic guy. I think one thing you that's just so remarkable is how unified all of the remembrances were. Everyone yeah. mentioned his, his character, how he treated people around him, how nice he was, how smart he was, um, how dedicated to the cause he was. You live your life like that, like live your life in a way that people will remember you like the way they remember Michael Brooks. That was just so yeah. remarkable. Yeah, I mean, I was, <laughs> I was so sad about this uh, to the point that I felt kind of weird about it because it's not like I was super close with Michael or whatever. We had texted a few times, but it's not like he was a close friend or anything. But when I looked online, I could see so many people were having that same kind of reaction, and it just speaks to the energy that Michael put out put out there. Uh, he was so supportive and encouraging to everybody that was trying to get involved with this. He 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 encouraged me when I was kind of taking the step of of getting into commentary and podcasting and stuff like that. And, and it meant so much to me that someone of his stature would take the time to sort of listen and, and encourage me. And that's what he was all about. Just supporting people, connecting people, uh, really a remarkable guy. And you mentioned his, his, uh, some of the ideas we need to kind of like follow through on. I think another thing many people mentioned this week was like his sense of internationalism, uh, his, how his, his analysis of politics didn't just stop and start at the U S but he was so fascinated with places in the global South with Africa and the Caribbean and all these different places where marginalized people and working people were struggling to, uh, to create a better world. Uh, he understood that kind of the, what we're trying to do here, uh, not just, you know, in, in media, but just on the left in general is trying to build a sort of a, a better world for everybody, not just in America, not just in Canada, but globally. Uh, and he was so, so adamant about centering, uh, these kind of struggles. That's something that I think we all need to add to our analysis and we always need to be, uh, uh centering as well, because I think he was absolutely right to do that. And that was, that was one thing that set him apart from so many other, uh, people doing the same kind of work. Um, so, uh, that, and that's all, I mean, obviously Michael had had friends and family that were, I'm sure were 
much more affected by this. So our, our, our thoughts and our prayers uh, go out to all these folks, everyone that knew Michael personally. Uh, it was a very, very devastating tragedy, but uh, it was there was something very beautiful seeing everyone come together, remembering Michael and, and the way that he uh, inspired and, and touched people's lives. Uh, that's something that I think we can all kind of uh, aspire to, to live our lives like that, where we, we have that kind of effect on people. Uh, it was pretty amazing. So uh, uh, rest in power, Michael. Uh, but uh, we're going to miss we're all going to miss Michael Brooks a lot. He was a very, very integral voice uh, on the left. And he's not not really replaceable either. So that's one of the reasons it was it was very, very sad. And with that, um, I think we can just get to the rest of the show now. We mentioned uh, discontents.substack.com. Uh, Please subscribe there. Remember, if you're not subscribed over at the insurgents.substack.com, you can also subscribe uh, there to make sure you're getting all our content in your uh, your inbox. Uh, we are also, as we mentioned, going to start doing some bonus content uh, within the next couple of weeks uh, that you're going to have to subscribe to have access to. We're still working out the sort of logistics of that. But um, uh, that'll be on the horizon very, very soon. You also get into our Discord community uh, where there's a, a great group of folks in there. Not not Ken, though. Ken, Ken Klippenstein will not be uh, in the Discord. You don't have to worry about that. <laughs> but that's how you subscribe uh, over at theinsurgents.substack.com. So once again, we have uh, Gabby Del Valle coming on the show, and she's going to be joining us right after this. And now we are back with Gabby Del Valle. She's a writer and reporter covering uh, immigration and labor, uh, one half of uh, Borderlines uh, from Substack, a wonderful new Substack project, and actually part of our new partnership there at uh, Discontents, uh, that sort of collective uh, Substack thing we've got going there. Gabby, thank you so much for joining the show today. Yeah, thank you guys so much for inviting me. Well, it's our pleasure. Um so before we get into the really heavy stuff that we're going to probably end up talking about, this is, of course, the sort of uh, a small talk segment. Um, we didn't go over this ahead of time, so I don't know if I, this might be kind of in the blue, but are, are you by any chance a gamer? I uh, just got a Nintendo <laughs> Switch. I okay. just got a Nintendo Switch so I can play Animal Crossing. Oh, nice. Um, and I've been playing like so much Animal Crossing that it's infiltrated my dreams. Okay. Um, and I also play Sims, but those are the only games that I play. I don't know. Does that make me a gamer? I feel like it yeah. doesn't. <laughs> I think it absolutely does. Jordan, what's your verdict on that? Oh, uh, yeah. Anybody can be a gamer. Yeah, it's just it's more of a mindset, fun. really. Okay, then, yeah, I would say I would say I'm a gamer. Um, this is, like, both kind of related to the, the small talk part and to, like, the future conversation about the hell that we live in. Yes. Um, but I had this dream last night that this immigration lawyer who I've been talking to for like months for the story I'm working on called me and was like, I need you to come to my island and drop off some coral right now. And I was like <laughs> on my way. Um, and I was like, holy shit. Like, I woke up and I was like, what is happening to my brain? Yeah. I've just been playing so much Animal Crossing because I'm in my childhood home right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it. I, I don't, I haven't played Animal Crossing, but from what I've seen of it, I do. I think I understand the appeal, especially right now for everyone that's kind of getting in that when with no matter how, how like heavy everything is getting, uh, you know, with the news or you know, everything that's going on, you can kind of escape to your little island with all your little items and do your little farming and hanging out there with the cute 
animals and the soothing electronic music and stuff. That sounds nice. Yeah, and it's really cute. And like my friend who isn't who like lives in the city that I'm in right now, and I can't see because we're in Florida in the middle of a pandemic. Um, I get to go to her island. She gets to come to my island. So it's nice. Um, it's like kind of dystopian and like that I'm escaping into this little world where I'm a tiny little person who like hangs out with a <laughs> raccoon and an eagle or whatever. But um, that's what we've got. Cool. Yeah. What games do you guys play? What what do real gamers play? I feel like a baby gamer. <clears throat> well, well, I was just going to say, I've been playing um, The Last of Us Part Two, which is so ruthlessly like depressing and, uh, and, and uh, uh, dystopian and oppressive that once you play that for a few hours, then you kind of look at everything happening in reality. And it's like, okay, well, it's not, it could be a lot worse. So that's kind of, it's kind of the opposite approach to a, a video game escapism. Okay. Is it like... <laughs> What what is it? Is it like there are zombies or like there's a pandemic or like there's it actually yeah it's like a video game theme yeah it's a it's a story that takes place uh, many decades after this pandemic created this this plague of of like kind of fungus zombies, um, and then it's it's this sprawling kind of adventure uh, where you get in all kinds of trouble and um, some very very devastating and terrible things happen throughout of it. And it's <laughs> for some reason I enjoy but, it. I'm not sure. No, as I'm yeah, describing it now, it doesn't sound fun, but it's I I do enjoy playing it though. It also doesn't sound like escapism, like <laughs> at all. Yeah. What are you still on Fortnite, Jordan? Or are you moved on? Haven't you been doing Halo? Yeah, I've been on a Halo run lately. Um, my wow. buddies and I have been playing through all the campaigns, which is, you know, not as not as in your face depressing, but it is. The premise of the original trilogy was like this kind of existential global threat. Uh, you know, kind of like an ecological disaster that threatened to wipe out the hum- uh, well, all humanity at the time. So, uh, not super uplifting, but but fun. Cool. Yeah. So I think you are actually have the better <laughs> approach here. I think you have the better gamer yeah. approach at the moment. I it's so soothing. I just chop down trees all day, <laughs> and then the trees regenerate, and like all the resources are there forever. There's no war. Everyone's so happy. I love it. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, I see the appeal. Uh, anyway, we're, we're, we're really happy to have you on the show, uh, Gabby, because, um, okay, so so when this pandemic really started to become a serious matter and it became clear that this was going to, you know, become a, a very serious problem uh, in the US and elsewhere, it was going to spiral out of control. Um, one of the things we mentioned when it was kind of kicking off was the idea of um, the the immigration detention centers, the network of immigration detention centers in the U.S., how a lot of these facilities uh, are already very unsanitary because of the lack of resources. They're being run in many cases by these completely unaccountable private corporations staffed with these like sadistic uh, people, whoever is in volunteering to work, work in these places. And it just seems like there's a real bad possibility for for a really kind of ugly situation to uh, to in- develop from that. Uh, because of how vulnerable these people in particular are. We talked last week about the prison system and how that uh, COVID-19 has been really uh, having a terrible effect there. Um, but that, I, I think that's something we were interested in exploring because I think this is a story that's not been reported on as much uh, in, the, in the media since this, this began. So I was just wondering uh, what you could tell us. You, you do great writing about immigration and, and news and, and stories that come out of that world. So, um, I know it's a big, it's a big, broad kind of opening question, but uh, w- can you tell us a little bit about how this pandemic 
has affected um, the the world of uh, of uh, the immigration system in the in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is, like you said, there's so much, but we're, I'll start with the ICE detention centers um, because I think that's what most people are most familiar with, um, and also because they're the most related to actual prisons, and also a lot of them actually used to literally be prisons that they then turned into these quote civil detention facilities for immigrants. Um, same building, you know, it's it's still a prison. They're still like prison units, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, I I don't even know where to begin, honestly, because there is so much. Um, so at the beginning of the pandemic, back in, you know, late February, early March, there was already a ton of concern over the people in ICE detention who have underlying medical conditions that makes them more likely to die if they get COVID. Um, so, you know, like diabetes, hypertension, et cetera. Um, and there were all these like efforts to get people out, often by literally suing ICE in federal court to order the release of people who were deemed quote unquote medically vulnerable um, and particularly vulnerable to the pandemic. And ICE preemptively released, I want to say maybe in March or in April, a couple hundred people, maybe like 700 people out of, you know, like 30,000 in its custody. Um, but yeah. obviously that wasn't enough and the pandemic started spreading pretty quickly or the sorry the, the virus started spreading pretty quickly in these facilities um because you know people sleep in bunk beds they don't really have their communal showers communal bathrooms communal space like your outdoor time is limited and not a lot of social work. distancing going on in these facilities yeah no absolutely not and it's all there's not like a lot of outdoor time and also even if the facilities were to be like completely sealed off to the out like there's actually there's no way to seal these facilities off to the outside world like the guards obviously don't live on site they have lives outside of the facility and these places are often in states that you know don't have mask mandates or have resisted um like measures to keep the pin for the virus from spreading as much as it already has so yeah there have been some lawsuits to get people out there were also protests within the detention facilities there have been hunger strikes there has been um kind of like a common protest tactic is just refusing to go back to your room for count um because you know it's prison they do things like count and etc even if it's not called a prison um and there is one instance at a detention facility not one actually there have been several instances but the one i'm thinking of is a deten uh, detention center in rural georgia called the Stewart detention facility where um the guards, the company that owns it, Korsavik, has this elite team of, uh, like, it's like a SWAT team, basically, but owned by this private company um, that pepper sprayed a bunch of protesters. Um, the Intercept reported on it at the time. I believe it happened back in April. Um, in other facilities, people were also pepper sprayed for protesting over not being released, over not being given masks, over not being given hand sanitizer. Um, at another facility in California, um, women who were detained there were asked to sign these liability waivers that were like, if I die, the company that owns this facility is not responsible for my death. And they didn't sign them, obviously. Um, and those are just the detention centers for adults. There are also detention centers for families and children. Um, and in those facilities, people, parents who were detained there have... Sorry, there's like, I'm going to go on a tangent, but it's related. There's this uh, court settlement called the Flores Settlement that basically says that children can't be detained in immigration custody in excess of 20 days. And 
the kids who are in these facilities have already been in them for more than 20 days. And um, these organizations sued and were like, you have to release these children. It's a pandemic. Like, you have to release these families. And ICE's response was to give every family a form that was like, do I consent to my child being sent to live with another relative while I stay detained? And it's called like binary choice. And the choice is I can be indefinitely detained with my child or my child will be released to like a family friend or a cousin or something and I will stay detained. And they were like, okay, pick one. And if you pick family detention, then it's your problem and we're not violating this agreement. So that's what's going on in detention right now. Um, It's really bleak. People are getting sick. People are dying. People have died. Um, And people are also really afraid to... If you get sick or if you're exposed, you get put basically in solitary confinement or in like a quarantine pod where if you don't have it, you're going to get it. And yeah, it's, it's fucked. Some of the lawsuits have been successful and some of them haven't. And it's just a matter of like which federal judge you get basically. Um, but yeah, it's overall really, really bleak and really, really fucked. And like just one of the many things um, that's happening right now. IS is also saying that like it's releasing as many people as it can, but you know, some people have criminal records that make them quote subject to mandatory detention. But mandatory detention in that case, like there there are laws and regulations like stipulating when a judge can and can't um, release somebody on bond, but that's only about what a judge can do. ICE can release literally whoever it wants, whenever it wants. And it knows that it could release literally everybody in detention tomorrow if they wanted to. And yeah. they don't. And yeah. It's and it's also like I I don't really love to make this distinction because it it can often be used to make it seem like like people in criminal detention facilities deserve to be there and people in immigrant detention don't. And that's not what I mean at all. But like ICE detention is not even punishment for anything. It's not supposed to be punitive. It's not supposed yeah. to be anything but a way to ensure that you go to your hearings. Well, it's not and, it's not supposed to be punitive, but you can it's yeah. clear from the the actions that the Trump administration has taken since coming in that that was exactly how they wanted to frame that and make it as uh, to discourage as many people possible from from uh, trying to cross the border by making it punitive and making the the cruelty kind of ramping that up to the highest level possible. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and like I mean, they're completely punitive places. They're run by prison companies most of, a lot of the time, or by local governments that also run criminal facilities like side by side and it's not like oh like these people aren't criminals and these people are criminals it's just like the law literally says that this is not supposed to be punitive detention it's supposed to be to make sure that people don't skip their hearings and most people don't skip their hearings like there's like there's no need for this kind of detention or like also to ensure public safety but like it's public safety during a pandemic is not like keeping hundreds of people warehoused in a building where they can't be safe like that's not public safety at all. Uh, no. Um, so, do you see any traction to? I mean, we we everyone has used stop putting kids in cages with the clapping emojis for years. Yeah. It's like kind of a, a, a signal to everyone that they were they were woke, and we saw this kind of performative activism from the liberal left over the past couple of years. Well, now the rubber is hitting the road. Where, if if anywhere is this going and what are people doing to stop this? And do you see any action at all or traction in Congress on some sort of um, restitution or, or any type of measure that would help immigrants right now? Mm-hmm. So really quick on the kids in cages bit, um, what is happening now? So, so all of the things that are happening in ICE detention are for people who are in like 
all of the things that I just mentioned are people are for people who are in ICE detention facilities, but the kids in cages thing was about kids who were in the custody of Customs and Border Protection. And that sounds like like a jargony distinction, but it's really important because like when you arrive at the border, CBP takes you in for processing, right? And then if you're an adult or a family, you get sent to ICE detention and then maybe released. And if you're a child, you get sent to these like unaccompanied migrant child shelters. But what's happening right now, and it's been happening since the beginning of the pandemic, is if you arrive at the border and you say like, hello, I'm an asylum seeker, I want asylum, they they don't even put you in a cage. They're just like, we're closed, go away. Like, that's what they do. They don't take you in. It, they call it expulsion. Huh. They just like turn you back to Mexico. Even if you were a child traveling alone, if you are a family with a baby, if you're an adult, it doesn't matter unless you say to them, affirmatively like i am afraid of being tortured if i get sent back to my country you will be turned away and if you say that you're afraid of being tortured then that person has to call their supervisor and you have to wait for their supervisor to come and then you have to tell their supervisor i'm afraid of being tortured and then you get taken in and like what they're doing with those people is like actually so repulsive they are um taking them to these hotels, like literally like to Hampton Inns and McAllen, like families with children, and they're not giving them access to lawyers. They're not um, like letting them go through the proper asylum process. They're just trying to get them out as quickly as possible. And, you know, there are like immigrant advocacy groups that are at the border who are like trying to make this stop. There are all of these lawsuits against not just this, but like kind of every ICE, every ICE CBP thing that's happening right now. But the crazy thing is that none of this is really broken into, like, the mainstream or even the left, I would say. Like, everybody's still talking about kids in cages with the clap emojis, but nobody even realizes that, like, the kids aren't even making it to the cages stage anymore. They're literally just, like, being turned away. And yeah, and so in many like, ways, this is like a dream scenario for, like, the immigration hardliners on the right. This is exactly how they've wanted to treat uh, migrants and asylum seekers for, for years, but they just haven't really had the legal pretext for it. Yeah, exactly. And, like, the reason they get to do this is this obscure little law, or I guess an obscure little statute, that lets the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention close the border to nationals of certain countries if there's concern about the introduction or spread of a, of a communicable disease. So they're literally using the pandemic as a pretext to not take in any asylum seekers, even though the United States has more coronavirus cases than like yeah. every country in Central America combined. And they're saying that they are the threat to public <laughs> health. And that's why they're turning them away. And like, there are so, I would say there's so many people, like so many lawyers, so many advocates, so many like, like other people who are working so hard to get this on people's radar. And like, there's just so much going on. And also like, I feel like for some people, the, the idea, like, I don't know how to, and this is going to sound like really sucks, but like, they want to feel bad for the kids in the cages. Do you know what I mean? Like, like they want the kids in cages to be there kind of like as proof that Trump is bad. I don't know if that makes any sense. But yeah, well, it's just like, kind of like a political football. Like we, we can, mm -hmm. it's more of a way to, to damage them than to act like the, <laughs> there's no actual movement to make that situation any better. Uh, <laughs> that seems to be on, on the horizon. Yeah, exactly. And like among like immigration lawyers and like all of these people that are suing and like causing all of this ruckus and stuff, like there are lawyers like showing up to the Hampton Inn, like and all of these other like little hotels along the border, like demanding to talk to these families, right? And like the guards, like guards would not let them. And like these people are so angry that people are still talking about kids in cages, which like, yes, that was awful. But it's also not even what's happening anymore. And what's happening is so heinous in its own unique way. Like, it, it, yeah, it's just like beyond 
beyond awful. And in terms of Congress, I haven't really seen any traction. I mean, I've seen, the, okay, there was a bill introduced in April called the FIRST Act, so the Federal Immigrant Release for Safety and Security Together Act. Um, and like, it's it was, it's a good piece of legislation that as far as I know, hasn't gone anywhere. It would basically um, require ICE to release a bunch of people during public health emergencies, like the coronavirus pandemic. Um, but, you know, I feel like in the same way that people are preoccupied with how federal aid is running out for everybody and how like we're living in the middle of a pandemic and like all of the shit is going on, people really aren't thinking about what is happening to people who aren't U.S. citizens, whether they be asylum seekers or whether they be immigrants who have lived in this country for decades and are now facing deportation and stuck in ICE detention. Yeah, and I think it's also one of the reasons that it's difficult to take seriously this, this complaint about you know kids in cages and using that as kind of a, a, a you know an attack line against Trump when Democrats have now nominated Joe Biden to run against Trump and he's got zero credibility on this issue uh, because he he was right along right next to Obama as he built this massive massive deportation machine uh, that deported more people than any president in in previous U.S. history. Um, and this is something that I've talked about before too. It's just um, I, I do find it a little bit disingenuous uh, to come from that kind of crowd to complain about that. Obviously, the Trump policy on this has been very intentionally cruel. The, the, the cruelty has been intentionally ramped up. Everyone should acknowledge that. Uh, but the idea that the system before that was somehow humane or good, uh, that's where no one has any credibility. Because it's like, you know, it's when Obama was, was really making an effort to uh, be a hardliner on this and deport every single person that had possibly some kind of criminal record or any kind of, you know, it's like that's that's that is also separating families when you're de when you're deporting millions and millions of people, and you're still inflicting the same kind of trauma, and uh, you know it, maybe it's it's dialed down a little bit, but still it, when people are are kind of talking about it like this is like a unique problem that just began when Trump uh, became president doesn't really strike me as very honest and i think it's that's that's the trouble that they have now with this issue is that they've their nominee has kind of been a part of that uh very cruel system yeah totally i i both agree with that and would push back on it a little only because like it's every single thing not every single thing i'm gonna rewind really quickly actually no every single thing that trump has done is like he hasn't they haven't passed a single immigration law it's all been through executive power in some way so that means that like the infrastructure for that was built not only by Obama, but by uh, George W. Bush and Clinton and H.W. Bush. So all of that has been there. And like the Obama administration, you know, built a lot of these family detention facilities when there was a big uptick in children, uh, unaccompanied children arriving in 2014. And like, I, I would agree that Joe Biden, I mean, he did literally tell DACA activists like, well, if you don't like it, go vote for the other guy. And they were like, yeah. we have DACA, we literally cannot vote. But at the same time, um, one thing that the Trump administration has done that gets a ton of attention, I would say, like in immigration circles and hasn't really broken through anywhere else is this thing, this like, I hate to call things Orwellian because it's corny, but this is like super Orwellian. It's called the Migrant Protection Protocol. Um, it's, and it basically is like, if you're an asylum seeker from a Spanish speaking country, um, there's you ask for asylum at the border, they process you at the border, and then they send you back to Mexico. And they're like, okay, well, you have to wait in Mexico now for your asylum case. So every morning that they have a hearing, they have to show up at the border at like 4 a.m., go through detention, go to their hearing, and then get spat back out like into Tijuana or um, another Mexican border city where they're like 
preyed upon by gangs and by like all of these people who know that they are not from there because of how they look and how they talk. Um, literally like I think 60,000 people who are there and who are still there right now in the middle of a pandemic and literally live in encampments, like in these massive tent cities because the shelters are overrun, a lot of them can't work. And that fully a Trump thing. Like that's never, like that's yeah. never, ever, ever been done before. But like the provision for that is in the Immigration and Nationality Act. So like there's like literally like Stephen Miller and his like little cronies were like reading through the INA and like highlighting every little thing that they could do to like take advantage of. And and there so there are things like that that I would say like at at the very least Biden wouldn't do that. But like that's I mean it's still pretty. It's a like, very low it's bar. Like, yeah, it's an extremely <laughs> low bar. The bar is like like on the fucking floor. But I, I will say like there is. Like it, it could be, Biden could be worse. And I hate to say that because it sounds like I'm giving him credit for something, which I'm not. It's just like, things are so bad right now yeah. that um, I understand the appeal of using immigration to make Trump look bad. Yeah. But no, I, I, yeah. No, that's, I think that's an important nuance though, is that you can, you can acknowledge that Trump has very intentionally made these things worse. Absolutely. Especially like the elements like Stephen Miller, the really like immigrant immigration hardliners in his administration. Definitely. Uh, I think it's just, that's the thing that people need to be aware of though, is that the previous system, while slightly more humane, wasn't this like perfect, you know, utopian thing. There is still a lot of intentional cruelty baked into that system as well. And the, and I think the concern is that, uh, there, I think there's a lot of people for who have like made this their issue that they've kind of talked about peripherally sometimes who when when and if Biden does become president again, they're going to say, well, now that's that's resolved. That's fixed. And meanwhile, there's still, you know, millions of people that are that are slipping through the cracks in that situation. Oh, no, absolutely. And I think my biggest fear is if Biden becomes president, that people will immediately, like you said, just think like, OK, great. We did it, everyone. Like immigration is fixed. Yeah. Back to awesome. brunch now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like there are there's so many things that, like that have always been awful. I mean, family detention has been around for a long time. Um, ICE detention in general. I mean, and before ICE, you know, the INS detention has been around for for a really long time. And these things won't go away just because of the transfer of power. Um, I mean, some of them, I would say, are likely to go away. Like, I don't think asylum seekers will be, you know, told to wait in Mexico if Biden is president. But I also think that, like, people are going to have to remind a Biden administration, like, hey, you said you would get rid of this, so get rid of it. Like, it's not like he's going to walk in on day one and be like, I'm getting rid of every Trump administration thing. Like, people yeah. are going to have to, like, be on his ass about it, I think. And because he's, like, not like an immigration candidate, you know? Yeah. Told the guy. He told the guy who asked about uh, the Obama-Biden administration's history of deportations and high deportation rates to go vote for Trump. Yeah. Like, that doesn't strike yeah. me as somebody who's who's super open-minded on this issue or, or welcoming of, of you know, <laughs> uh, constructive criticism. Yeah. Yeah, and I think a larger problem um, that's, like, beyond Obama, beyond Biden, but just kind of the way that immigration functions in this country is, like, you either have a U.S. citizen relative who petitions for you and then you wait like 20 fucking years to come here. Sorry that I keep saying fuck. Um, you can say fuck. That's or, fine. Yeah. Great. I know. I just I just have said it a lot like in the past like five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, or yeah. So either you have like a U.S. citizen relative. We'll do a content warning you. before this episode. So. Yeah. Gabby says fuck <laughs> a lot. Or and like or you do it that way or you have like 
an asylum claim that only like fits in this narrow little category of like how you can come here as an asylum seeker. And it's not like, oh, my country is really bad. I'm coming here for asylum. And then they're like, okay, great. You're, you have to come. Like you have to prove that you are being persecuted because of your race, identity, nationality, religion, political activism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And like, if you don't have a lawyer, like, how are you going to prove that to a judge? Like, if you don't have documentation, how are you going to prove that? Yeah. So it's just like, you get to be here for a couple of years before you get deported. And if you're lucky, you get to be here for a couple of years, not in detention. And like, yeah, and, and I said, lucky is, you know. Yeah. And if, yeah. And, if, and if you don't, if you manage to sort of have some element of freedom, you're constantly looking over your shoulder and you have to be constantly aware of everything. And if one, you have one little slip up, then in your whole life is uh, ruined. You're living on this knife edge of precarity. It doesn't really sound very like a great situation. Thank you. Sorry. I hope that it didn't ruin the whole recording. I think it actually sounds better now. Oh, wait, really? <laughs> Damn. I'm, not, I'm wow. not sure. Oh, well. I was trying to use those because I was like, oh, their audio quality is fancy. That's why people have these. I've never used AirPods in my life. I'm like ethically opposed to them. Okay. Um, yeah, because I heard they don't like biodegrade or whatever. And then the materials yeah, they that just are- kind of collect. Yeah. And then the materials that they're made of are like super rare. And like, I think there are like children mining them or something. <laughs> Probably. That sounds about right. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, I'll just stick to my shitty headphones that cost $20. Um, anyway. Okay. I was about to talk about deportations, <laughs> which are still happening, okay. by the way, um, during a pandemic and they never stopped. So yeah. Um, so people, immigration courts are like not independent. They're basically operated by the Department of Justice, which I'm sure... You can assume like means that there are all kinds of concerns about independence and ethics um, since the attorney general basically gets to dictate what they do. Um, and the courts have been half open since the pandemic started. So for people who are not in detention, their hearings have been postponed indefinitely. For people who are at the border in Mexico who are considered both detained and not detained, depending on which is less advantageous for them at the moment, um, their hearings are also paused. And for people in detention, their hearings are still happening because the detained docket moves the fastest. So people who are in detention, who of all immigrants right now on ICE's radar are the most likely to get sick, are also still subject to de deportation and are still being deported like right now. <laughs> and countries that have tried to push back on this have either been retaliated against by the US or the president has said like, if you don't accept your deportees, we're gonna retaliate against you. Um, yeah, so they're still doing that. Very cool. And they've, like, not introduced coronavirus into these countries, but, like, they have deported people who end up testing positive for coronavirus after they get sent back. And, like, in El Salvador, there's, like, a quarantine center for all the deportees where they just, like, sleep in a covered basketball court, basically. And they have to stay there for two weeks. And if they're not already, if they don't already have coronavirus, then, like, they're going to get it there, you know? Like, yeah. Social yeah. distancing. I've talked to people who have slept in these places and like, if it rains, you all get wet. So you have to huddle in the one part that's dry and then you're not socially distanced at all. And then you go back to your town and everybody's like, oh, you came from the US, which is full of coronavirus and they treat you like a leper. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's really terrible. Yeah. And that's so that's happening right now. They've deported people with coronavirus to Haiti. They've deported people with coronavirus to Guatemala. Um, and... They also, um, they say that they take everyone's temperature at the beginning of the flight, and if somebody has a fever, they don't put them on the flight. But, like, we've known about asymptomatic transmission since March. So, like, 
yeah somebody not having a fever doesn't mean that they're not gonna have coronavirus <laughs> yeah, there's no ex- there's no excuse to not know about this at yeah this point. yeah no i mean and they know about it they yeah of course they yeah, yeah they just they just don't care like they don't care yeah and um yeah it's they're basically like exacerbating the spread of coronavirus in countries that have fewer resources to deal with it and then turning around and being like well we can't accept immigrants from anywhere because they could have coronavirus yeah um yeah it's awful so so one thing i was kind of wondering about as well is that you mentioned that people that you know were aware that people are getting sick and and some dying in some cases in these facilities um but do you think there's any issue where like i know when it comes to these family separations and then and these different children it seems like they've lost track of a lot of people that are even in this system like it's not like there's this really strict record keeping uh apparatus in place um and like are are we sure that the numbers coming out from these various facilities and the different people the both private and public uh people uh, that are running these facilities uh like is there a chance that that like the numbers could be worse or, or the numbers of deaths could be worse than, than what is being reported. Uh, I guess that's the kind of thing is that, you know, there's a lot of these people that are in these facilities are basically like non people. They're not citizens. So they're not really afforded the same rights. And uh, you know, it, it, it harkens back to the conversation about these camps when we, when, when the news started coming out about them where they were referred to as concentration camps. And then there's this idea of like, Oh, you can't, you can't possibly say that. How, what an offensive thing to call them concentration camps. But even if you look at, you know, Germany and world war two and concentration camps there, it's not like all the deaths that took place there were, uh, you know, outright murders with gas chambers, et cetera. Uh, but a lot of it is because of illness and, and diseases that are not taken care of. Um, and, I also mentioned how it's it's kind of the ideal scenario for a lot of immigration hardliners right now in terms of the rules they're able to sort of get away with. And I think there's an element of that as well, where it's like they don't, there are people uh, involved in setting immigration policy that do not care whether whether these people live or die. And in some cases, we just prefer that they did die. Uh, so I'm just wondering if that's, is there an element of that? Like, do we, do we know for sure that the numbers that are coming out of these camps in terms of infections and, and deaths are accurate? I mean... In terms of the testing rate, I would, like they say how many people are currently in custody, how many people are tested, and like how many confirmed cases there are per facility. But they take a lot of liberties with what those numbers look like, and also how many employees are sick. And like they've basically had to release more and more information because of public pressure, because what they were releasing at first was practically nothing, and then kind of bullshit, and now it's pretty detailed but still kind of misleading so like right now i like just went to the ice.gov slash coronavirus um page it says the total detained population is twenty-two thousand people and there are sixteen thousand five hundred and three detainees tested as of around the same time and you're like oh that's a pretty good testing rate but like you it's not clear if that's detainees tested between now like if it's 16,000 of those 22,000 tested, which I don't think it is, or if it's 16,000 people tested since March. Because they have been releasing people. They're not testing everybody in custody. They are not always disclosing when, like, if you work for CoreCivic, which is one of the companies that owns these facilities, and you get sick with coronavirus, ICE wasn't counting that as an employee case because they're not technically an employee of ICE, which is it doesn't mean like there are people who who work for a company that works for ice like a normal person would say like oh yeah that guy's an ice detention guard 
but like because of a technicality, they don't count as an ICE related coronavirus case. Um, so yeah, the numbers like you have to rely on ICE for these numbers because the access to these facilities is so limited, but like there's never a way to guarantee that the numbers are completely accurate because like they're not yeah. even testing everybody. And like they're not even testing everybody that they deport. And it's yeah, it's there's no real way to know. And like there's no transparency at all. Um, even though the detained courts are open, um, sometimes like literally like at 8 p.m. on a weeknight, the agency that runs the courts will be like the Seattle court will be closed tomorrow morning and everyone's like oh there was a case like there was somebody was exposed there but like they announce it on Twitter like they announce these things literally on Twitter they're like oh like you had a hearing tomorrow morning too bad it's closed now because somebody got coronavirus um and like they they don't communicate they're not transparent um they visitations haven't happened I believe since March either so it's like the only way that people who are in detention can like communicate with people is over the phone. And also their phone calls are monitored (laughs) or through letters and their letters are monitored um, because they're imprisoned. So like, yeah, it's like ICE's word against the word of people who are detained there. And then like also CoreCivic's word and uh, GEO group's word and LaSalle Corporation's word against the group of the people who are there making millions of money off of. Um, And like, this is also a tangent, but it's related, I promise. Um, <laughs> I, um, my colleague and I just reported out the story for The Intercept about these three people at the Stewart Detention Facility in Georgia who all requested medical attention and were all physically accosted in some way by guards. Two of them were in wheelchairs and they got thrown to the ground. Another one got slammed into the ground so hard that like his vision has been blurry ever since and like still hasn't gotten fixed, all because they asked if they could go to the doctor. And we went to ICE and we were like, these people asked to go to the doctor and instead of taking them to the doctor, the guards like hit them. Like what, what the hell is going on? And they were like, we do not ever deny medical custody or medical treatment to people in our custody. And it's like, well, these people told us that you do. And they're like, yeah, but we don't. And like, that's the level of transparency that you're dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that answered your question. Well, like, I mean, as it, as best you can, yeah. Obviously, yeah. it's like that. It just seems like the information isn't totally available to everyone, no, and that's the kind of scary all. thing because you know that there could be a lot of a lot more dark stuff happening, possibly beneath the surface that we're not even totally aware of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the only way, really, for any of it to get out is like if somebody has a lawyer or somebody's in touch with like a nonprofit that works with people who are detained, and then that person contacts the person who they know, who then contacts a reporter, and like it. If it's not like, like, you know how if you are charged with a crime and you can't afford a lawyer, you get a lawyer? That's not how it works for ICE, for immigration. Like, if you can't afford a lawyer, you're out of luck. And if you can't afford a lawyer and you're detained in, like, the middle of nowhere in some, like, tiny town where, like, your family can't come see you anymore, there might not ever be a way for you to tell people what's happening to you. Yeah. And one of the things that um, I've experienced, we, I used to work at a law school that would work uh, in detention facilities in Carnes oh, yeah. uh, and other family detention centers in Texas is they are uh, completely extrajudicial. Mm. Some days the guards will just be like, okay, attorneys can come in some days for no reason. They won't let you in. And you're just kind of stuck there as you're trying to help women and children prepare for the credible fear interviews if they're seeking asylum. And it's just, it's, it, it's grotesque. And for a country and especially a political wing that prides itself on law and order and, you know, just come and, you know, 
just follow, just go go through the system and get here the, the legal way. Well, the system is broken because you have just asshole guards at these facilities not even letting free lawyers come in to help these people it's so grotesque yeah absolutely and like even coming here the legal way they they don't want that either i mean if you come to a port of entry at the border and you say like hello i am requesting asylum like that is coming here the legal way and they don't they don't want that um another thing that i wanted to talk about um is like there's basically like two kinds of immigration things happening right now one of which is like things happening because of COVID or like quote unquote because of COVID. So like how they close the border because of COVID, but not really, it's just because they wanted to close the border. Um, And then there's also things that are happening because everybody's distracted by COVID. So like they introduced a new rule that would basically deny asylum to everyone, um, which again, asylum is like a form of legal immigration. Um, There's a ban on a bunch of immigrant and non-immigrant visas, which again, like they say they like legal immigration. So why would they ban (laughs) the most common forms of legal immigration. Um, It's, yeah, it's like every single level of how the system functions is just not even broken at this point. It's just, I don't even know. I mean, like, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Like USCIS, the agency that handles legal immigration, is basically insolvent because they've slowed down processing time so much and like, like, because they've like made legal immigration harder and it's a fee funded agency. The agency is literally entirely funded by people who want to come to this country and like are paying for their work permits and for their visas and all this stuff and for their applications. And they've, because of the way that the, this country is handling immigration right now, like that agency is about to literally run out of money. Like it's, it's insane. It's just like absolutely insane. Yeah. And you mentioned how there's not really a political solution for this on the horizon, even though it's been kind of discussed, but it just seems like the kind of thing also that there there's not going to be real movement on this if there isn't also mass public pressure at the same time to force, you know, uh, policymakers into action on this. And there's so much fucking horrendous shit going on right now that people are stretched to the limit. There's already like the largest a mass uprising in American history on going on right now based on this issue of criminal justice and systemic racism and stuff. And it's like, people don't have the, the energy to also redirect their, their passion and their, their protest towards this other important issue. Um, so that's the kind of frustrating thing also, because I think that's the only way that there's ever going to be movement on this on a political level. Uh, it's not going to happen without, without immense public pressure, because we've seen at, at periods when that public pressure has kind of like, uh, increased, in intensity, then all of a sudden you have lawmakers and people starting to talk about it and start to talk about solutions. But right now it's just not really on anyone's radar and that's, that's no one's real fault. It's just, it speaks to how many different, very serious crises there are going on right now that not everyone can focus on this, uh, in the way that maybe they, they would like to. Yeah, totally. I mean, like family separation, which again is the thing that everybody likes to point to, like they were taking kids from their parents and putting them in cages that ended because of like or not ended actually they're they still kind of did it but not mass family separation they just did it less um after like mass public protest and daca i mean the supreme court ruled on daca recently and they're ruling nothing to do with whether daca is good or bad or like whether people like it or not it was just like oh you guys tried to get rid of daca the wrong way so try to get rid of it the right way which you're allowed to do but like yeah like, the things that people are fixated on are, like, again, like, the bar is literally on the floor. Like, DACA is a temporary thing that's, like, oh, yeah, you won't get deported if you stay 
in good standing with us, but also you'll never be a U.S. citizen. And you're like, you're just stuck in this limbo forever. And that's the best that we're going to offer you. And, and like, there's no, I don't know if it's like, I, I think before, you know, the uprisings, before the pandemic, it was mostly a lack of vision and a lack of willingness to do something about it from lawmakers and the people who actually have the power to, you know, make people, give people status so that they're not suddenly like able to be deported at a moment's notice and like have their life completely torn apart. Um, and now, yeah, it's like there are just so many things going on. And I mean, even with like the pandemic, like if you're not, if you're undocumented, you didn't get a stimulus check. You're not getting your 600 a week. Like yeah. you don't get anything unless your city like, uh, like gives you a tiny grant, like you get nothing. So there's also like this permanent underclass of people that are also a lot of the time still working. I mean, like agriculture is still happening, you know, like meatpacking, like that's a largely yep. immigrant industry. And then at the same time, you have people like the governor of Florida and um, like the Smithfield meat plant being like, oh, actually immigrants have coronavirus because they live in inter intergenerational households um, and not because we force <laughs> them to work in these horrible conditions because they are uh, yeah. like eligible for the same kind of relief that people are getting that's like preventing them from working in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, it's like you point out uh, this permanent underclass gets created who also capitalism relies on these very people to be in that exact underclass. Uh, it almost seems kind of intentional yeah. sometimes when you think <laughs> about that. It's weird. Completely. And I mean, oh, um, <laughs> even though they banned a bunch of um, non-immigrant work visas, one of the ones that they didn't ban is like some of the temporary agricultural work because, you know, we really need temporary underpaid agricultural labor to keep everybody else fed which like yeah we do but you know we could pay them better and we could like not exploit them but all of this is a choice it's a choice to do all of it and sorry another tangent i'm just like all over the place <laughs> um it's I, okay it's great i think people think of immigration and um black lives matter and like policing as like different issues but there are a ton of black immigrants who because they're more likely to be criminalized are also more likely to be deported because of criminal charges and, or like like these things are really interrelated and i think looking at them together is a good way forward um like there are ob like obviously um they're not always linked like there are immigrants who are not black there are black people who are not immigrants but yeah if you're if you're a black immigrant you're marginalized in all of these different ways where like you're subject to over policing which could then lead to ice picking you up which could then lead to you being deported or incarcerated first and then deported in the middle of a pandemic or otherwise and then your family has to kind of get on without you here or go with you and yeah yeah um gabby the last thing i wanted to to speak to you about here um because as we talked about i am canadian and um I, I do think it's important like it's important I think to cover the ongoing story at the southern United States border it's it's a big story and it's it's very important that we all everyone focuses on that but I think there was a, a news regarding to immigration and the Canada US border that came out this week regarding the uh, safe third country agreement now do you do you know enough about that to talk about it because I can talk about it a little bit as well but I was just wondering if we could Talk a little bit about what that safe third country agreement means and, and how that changes the the situation vis-a-vis -vis immigrants and refugees coming to Canada through the U.S. Do you know anything about this? Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, the only reason I know anything about it at all is because the Trump administration si signed um, similar agreements with Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. 
um, to send people to those countries and treat them as safe third countries. And that's the only reason I know of the Canadian one. But yeah, yes, let's talk about it. Should, should I go? Should you go? Uh, well, yeah, if, you, if you're familiar with it, uh, you can explain just like what this what this safe third country agreement means and how how this new ruling is going to change the the immigration situation on the, the Canada US border. Yeah, yeah. So, um from my understanding, a safe third country agreement, it's basically an agreement between two or more countries that says if an asylum seeker arrives in one of these countries first, that is the country where they have to claim asylum because both countries are equally safe. Um so it's meant to prevent what they call venue shopping, which is going from asylum from asylum country to asylum country until you get to your intended destination. Because as the logic goes, if you are seeking asylum, if you are a genuine asylum seeker, you will go to the first place that is safe for you. And like, of course, if you're a genuine asylum seeker, you, you will go probably to where you might have family or a network or people who you already know who care about you. Or, you know, there's a community of people who are from where you're from. But anyway, none of that went into the considerations. It was just like, wherever you get to first, that's where you seek asylum. So if somebody were to arrive in the U.S., cross into Canada, and say, hey, I'm seeking asylum, they could be sent back to the U.S. because both countries are kind of understood to have comparable asylum systems and comparable like levels of due process for asylum seekers. But this was it this week that um, a Canadian court was like, actually, the U.S., does not treat asylum seekers yeah. well enough for us Doesn't to even... no longer qualifies. Yeah. Yeah, it was just a couple days ago. Yeah. Yeah, so um, Canada kind of called bullshit, and they were like, you guys don't treat asylum seekers well enough for us to continue to be part of this agreement with you. And yeah. you know what? They're, they're right. I, I don't know anything, though, about how the Canadian asylum, se- asylum system functions, so it might be posturing for all I know. Well, I don't think so, but because uh, I, th- I think this is a decision that was long overdue, um, it had like obviously the U.S. has not been a safe uh, environment for refugees and and uh, for refugees for the, at least the last four years of the Trump administration, uh, as as they've made that kind of a priority as soon as they they kind of took over. Um, but this is something that I always think it is important to talk about because this is one of many issues where Canadians look at the sort of horror that's happening on the southern border and kind of allow themselves to say like, well, at least things are not so terrible here and we've got this, this sane, uh, uh, pleasant system. But I think it is, um, while it is true that America obviously is a, a not a safe, uh, situation for, uh, for refugees, um, we still have a situation in, uh, uh, with with as it pertains to these these folks in this country that's still not a, a great system we still have you know immigration detention facilities that are filled with families and i pointed out it's kind of the similarities between the obama approach and the trump approach where it's like okay well we don't have this like in- incredibly cruel system of intentional separation and we're where we're intentionally traumatizing literal children but we still have situations where we have immigrant detention centers that are filled with families and children and these children are not actually prisoners like they're they're free to leave technically at any time um but, you know, that means that if they decide to leave their parents in these facilities, they're going, they're sometimes getting put into the foster care system, uh, where they, there's a possibility of, you know, being subject to abuse or, or, you know, they're, they're having to leave their parents and leave their families. Um, so we have this situation still where there's like de facto of uh, child prisoners that are growing up in these facilities. I heard one really, really horrendous story about, 
uh, a child in one of these facilities where their first word was actually like one of the call signs that they heard on the radio from the guard walkie talkie. Uh, because there's, yeah, these there's facilities that are still filled with families and young children here. So while it is definitely true that I think it is a safer environment for, for refugees and it was long overdue that they overturned this, uh, safe third country agreement. Uh, it is a situation where I think a lot of people in Canada need to look at this and, and demand that, that we're not just accepting the U.S. again as like the low bar that we can clear to, to prove that we're humanitarian and we have a great system. Um, because we have a lot of these same issues. Uh, and in Trudeau, again, this is a, this is an issue where when, when Trump came in, he, of course, he started the, the Muslim ban and made this kind of big, uh, um, show of, of really being a hardliner when it comes to immigration, especially from like from these specific, uh, religious minorities or ra- racialized groups. And Justin Trudeau made a very, uh, you know, a very, uh, a positive Instagram kind of post saying everyone's welcome here in Canada and received all kinds of international praise for this. And every, and a lot of liberals in, in Canada and the U S were kind of pointing to this as, as a, as a sign of how, you know, more advanced we are and more civilized. Uh, Justin Trudeau didn't actually make any changes to our immigration system. He didn't do anything to actually help the people that are being, uh, subjected to this, uh, uh, the really relentlessly cruel uh, system in the U.S. Uh, it was more just kind of as everything that he does that is meant to sound progressive and is mostly just like a marketing scheme. Uh, but while not really challenging any of the the status quo that's in place currently, uh, that's affecting all these people. So I think the safe third country agreement was a very convenient thing for Trudeau and the Liberal Party because they were able to kind of posture themselves as being the the sort of uh, pro immigrant, uh, pro refugee people while still being able to just uh, dismiss many, many folks that come through the border and just sending them back to America, despite knowing that it's not a safe environment. So uh, I, I do think this decision is, is long overdue. I'm happy that it happened, but definitely people in Canada need to be more aware of how our system is still uh, very cruel and uh, and dehumanizes and marginalizes these folks in many of the same ways uh, and, and not being as terrible as America is not enough of an excuse to not uh, focus on trying to improve that in any way. Yeah, I think the big distinction for me is the way that Trump handles immigration is through spectacle. So the wall is a spectacle. Fam- separating families is a spectacle. And I mean, like forcing people to wait for their asylum cases in Mexico and live in these tent cities is a spectacle. And it creates these images that send a message to people who are, it sends a message to nativists, like, look at these people who are storming the border. Like, look at how strong of a stand we're willing to take against them. But the way that the immigration system functioned before that was, like, largely opaque and largely out of sight and still very traumatic. It was just traumatic in a technocratic, bureaucratic way instead of in a really visceral way. But that doesn't make it good. It just makes it harder to yeah. visibly like harder to point to it and be like see this is why this is bad and i think that's the problem that a lot of people run into when like trying to explain immigration stuff is like there's all these little technicalities and like all of these little things that it all sounds really dry and it has these really serious life or death life or death consequences for people but like the language around it is so jargony and like kind of it's like just dehumanizing yeah. And part of it, the reaction to Trump and the kind of the knee-jerk recoiling from the never-Trump right 
um, is is based in kind of that spectacle. It's it's not that they care about anything that he's actually doing because if you look at things that they've said and things that they've done, it's it's deeply similar and things that they've supported. It's that he's just so in your face with it, which makes it really easy to oppose if you are um, on the left or even like in 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 the middle. So what they want is just kind of some some quiet um, tactical shifts on this type of stuff that don't like you know you know rile up anybody. And that's the same thing for for Biden. A lot of the establishment left. It's just they did this kind of stuff. They did it under Obama. A lot of these types of systems were put in place uh, by the Obama Biden administration. It's not that they actually oppose it. It's that Trump is just so in your face with it. Now people are noticing, and they get defensive, but. It's true. I mean, this happened. Family detention happened under Obama and Biden. And I think it's hilarious. Not hilarious, but it's just it's grim and darkly ironic that one of the pictures that so many people often point to to show how inhumane these practices are. There's this picture of this kid uh, in a cage staring up at a TV by himself. And people are like, look, we don't want this. That was taken in like 2015. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Was, I, it wasn't Carnes. It was I, it was like either McAllen or MacArthur. One of the other like did family detention centers in in Texas. But it's a kid in a cage staring up at a TV, and people be like, "We have to free him." Okay, well, where were you when Obama was doing it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I mean, I've been doing a lot of reading about the border wall lately, and there was also all these videos of um, like bulldozers pulling out saguaro cacti out of the ground and like. People being like, it's literally illegal to destroy one of these. And it's like the law that lets the president or I guess the attorney general waive the Environmental Protection Act to build a border wall was like implemented. It was done under Clinton. Like there has been a long standing bipartisan consensus that like, quote unquote, illegal immigration is bad and we have to do everything we can to prevent it. I mean, I remember in 2017, um, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer were like, they went to Trump and they were like, look, if you keep DACA, we won't give you funding for the wall, but we will give you funding for sensors and drones and new cars for Border Patrol and for all of this stuff. And it's honestly better than a wall because it's more <laughs> effective. And like, yeah. and it's a, an invisible tech solution, quote, like solution that honestly would probably be better at catching people who are trying to cross if that's the goal than a wall. And which shows that like the goal on their end is not actually to help migrants and shows that the goal on Trump's end is a spectacle because like drones are really effective but and they're cheaper but they're not the vis- like the message that he wants to send visibly. Yeah. Yeah, it's like people have talked about this too. It's like the wall is more of like a monument. It's like a monument to Trumpism, to to the kind of white supremacist uh, ideal behind America as a foundation. Uh, more than an actually effective like immigration tactic. Yeah, yeah, totally. Because like the wall won't prevent somebody from walking up to a port of entry, as asylum seekers have been doing, and asking for asylum. Like it, because it's not meant to prevent that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it was great to talk to you about all this stuff, Gabby. I mean, it's kind of not. I don't want to say great because it's very depressing this subject, but it's it's obviously very important that we get into it. And uh, you do really great work covering this and it was it was a pleasure to speak to you thank you for coming on the the program to talk about this with us yeah thank you for having me i went off on a million tangents but i hope that they all make sense together (laughs) i think so i'll use my my uh 
producer uh, knowledge to make sure that it all is a, <laughs> fits together nicely. Amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Do you just want to let everyone know where they can find you online, where they can find your writing and your work and, and stuff before we let, let you go? Yeah. So my Twitter is at Gabby, G-A-B-Y-D-V-J-1-B, not two. Um, and my immigration newsletter is borderlines.substack.com. Yeah, and again, part of uh, Discontents, the new sort of uh, collective we've put together with a number of other uh, uh, podcasters and writers on Substack. Uh, so it's a pleasure to be uh, to be working with you on this stuff. It's uh, it's really exciting, and and uh, uh, I hope everyone subscribes to that and and gets the whole the whole full collective experience that we've we're curating over there. Yes, yeah, subscribe to Discontents. Yes, absolutely. Okay, well, thanks again, Gabby, and we'll uh, we'll we'll talk to you soon. Bye bye. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Ken in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening.